on the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. So the Debril Vineyard is 30 years old. How old is that in human years? Oh, goodness. <laughs> it worked. It really worked. It really did work. Even though we were just basically guessing. So whose big idea was it to plan and then plant a vineyard? Well, everything has to be improved by my mom, first of all. Oh, so, okay. I, uh, I can relate. I can relate. And now, the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. The cell phones have been silenced. The wine has been poured. And just like that, the podcast begins. The Tall Mike Wine Podcast. The wine podcast that's not all about wine. The wine podcast like no other. And I'm Mike Stone, the eponymous tall wine guy and your host of the wine podcast heard in 37 countries on five continents and in 44 of these United States and the District of Columbia. Thanks for finding us, Waterville, Maine, Marion, Iowa, Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, and oh, the Big Apple, New York, New York. Now I need a favor. The whole ratings and reviews things, get on it. They tell me it helps a lot. And now... On with episode 25, I am again at home in Nevada, California, recording a guest who's far away. Uh, It's a windy day, so if you hear bells ringing, those are wind chimes just outside my window here. But things are still happening at Nicholson Ranch, the winery where I work, in Sonoma, although it's a little quieter than usual at the winery lately because the big boss is on vacation. Yes, that's right, Deepak, familiar to regular listeners, and the owner and winemaker at Nicholson Ranch, he's gone back to the homeland. He's in India. But he'll be back before the busy season starts up, and we'll have him on the podcast again very soon. My current guest is also a return guest. She was with us last August on episode 16. We talked about her life as a winemaker in Washington State. Her family planted a vineyard. She makes the wine for the estate's Colt Bonneville label. And this year, they are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the DeBrule Vineyard, one of Washington's big hitter vineyards. Welcome back and happy anniversary, Carrie Shields. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. I'm glad to see you on my screen. Winter time in the Yakima Valley. Although I just checked the weather there and it would seem to be quite mild. Yes? It's pretty warm today for winter and it's sunny, which is lovely. I'm glad because it's sunny side. It's supposed to be sunny all the time. You're in but the town of Sunnyside. In the town of Sunnyside. Let's, let's say that out loud because uh, if, if you don't, then people won't know what you're talking about. Well, that's true. How has the winter been? It's... In- a- the Yakima Valley. It was actually pretty cold for a while. We got a bunch of snow, which is great. We've had lots of precipitation this year, uh, which is needed because we get all of our all of our irrigation comes from snowpack in the Cascades, and so it's nice to be getting lots of snow. Just typical winter. What's been the coldest temperature? Did you get down into the single digits? Oh yeah. Did you get down below zero? No, I think the low okay. at one point was supposed to be three, but okay. I don't know that we we did not get below zero. That's got to be rough on the grapevines. Actually, they're dormant. It, and having four distinct seasons is good for the grapevines. And so oh. one of the things that's really helpful is that when we have a cold winter like this, then when the grapes start waking up and they go to bloom, they all bloom at the same time. And if you're in a place 
like Sonoma, which is not as cold over the winter, Mm -hmm. then bloom happens over a longer period of time. And it's just one more thing where there's a lot more variability in things that are happening. In many ways, it's easier. It starts your vintage out with all the grapes at the same place. If you, and the same timing, if you have a cold winter. We have the all the whole blooming thing going on, the flowering thing, and it happens over the course of uh, several weeks. And of course, the longer it goes, the more uh, you have to worry about things that might happen in any of those particular days, like a big rain shower, which is not good. No. So <laughs> that's, well, and if you want to do things at different points in time and phenology, like that, which is the stage of the grape, if everything happens at the same time, it's a lot easier to do things when you're supposed to, as opposed to, you know, if you wait for the last grapes to start blooming and then you're already behind with the, with the things you should have done in the vineyard with the first ones. That's cool. That's new knowledge for me. Thank you. So the Nebril Vineyard is 30 years old. How old is that in human years? Oh goodness. (laughs) Are they old vines now? Are they really old vines? Are (laughs) Are they getting close to the end of their life? characterize that for me a little bit. Like if you're growing grapes for yield and if you're growing grapes for wines that are at a lower price point, so the grapes are at a lower price point, uh, you need more of them to make it work. But you're also not as interested in the complexity. As vines get older, the yields go down, flavors get more interesting. And usually a commercial vineyard about 40 years is the time that it will before it gets replanted. Commercial vineyard means they're trying to get as many grapes as possible. Right? Yes. And so yes. they're getting, so they're get, they're watering it a lot and they're getting big balloon sized grapes that are full of water and they're getting what? Eight, nine, 10 tons per acre. I worked when I was in Australia as a winemaking intern, I worked with some vines that were a hundred and well, they were planted in the 1860s. So they mm-hmm. were 150 years old. Wow. Old vines doesn't mean anything in the U S legally. Uh, we tend to speak of old vines, especially uh, there's some people in California that consider old vines to be about 20, above 25 years, mm. 10 year, 10 years is a mature vineyard, mm-hmm. 25 years. People kind of talk about as old vines in Australia where they have lots of old vines, vines don't really become old until they hit about 60. And then the next point where people use old vines is a hundred. Do they have a, a legal definition of old vines in Australia? No. Okay. I don't think so. So it's just a it's just a term people can use. I know in Washington State, um, maybe 10, 20 years ago, people started talking about old vines, the ones that were first planted, the ones from like the 1970s. And they are old from the standpoint that most vineyards do get yields start to go down. So if you, that's, you know, if you need tonnage and that's your primary driver as opposed to quality, mm-hmm. you pull them out after about 40 years, if not okay. sooner. So back to my original question, in human years, 30 years, maybe getting up there. They're getting up there. They're into like maybe the late middle age. Yeah. Kind of like me, I'm 57. (laughs) They're probably... Are they about my age? They're probably closer to your age than than just 30. So yes. Okay. So what sort of commemorations are happening with the anniversary? I'm trying to tell a bunch of stories. We do a happy hour monthly with our wine club. And um, we started in January with the basically going back to the beginning of the Washington wine industry. And we had some other growers who were the first people, uh, Jonathan Sauer from Red Willow Vineyard. 
his family was the first to plant Syrah in Washington, which is now a huge grape in Washington state. They were one of the early pioneering uh, grape growing families. And so we had John come on to the happy hour and he and my dad basically just talked about stories of planting the vineyard and growing the vineyard. And, and I've got that up on YouTube. We're doing a bunch of that kind of stuff, telling stories, sharing and planning some retrospective vertical tastings, because as we talked about in episode 16, the winery is in a state winery. We sell grapes to about a dozen different wineries around the state of Washington, but we also make a lot of our own wines at Cope Bonneville. And we always intended to make age-worthy wines. And so we always kept a library, which is relevant too, from the standpoint that a lot of people didn't think 30 years ago and 20 years ago, they didn't think Washington wines would age because nobody knew as an industry, we're just so young, nobody was doing that. And so it's fun to see people start to be opening those bottles of wine and saying, oh, whoa, Washington wines that are 20 years old still taste young and lively and fresh and vibrant. And that's- right. it worked. It really worked. It really did work. Even though we you- were just basically guessing. Well, you're always kind of guessing, right? I, I mean, when do you know, ever but- actually know when you're building something new? That's the fun no. part about building something new. I agree wholeheartedly. So you've got the happy hour thing going and you do that on Zoom? Yeah, we do. The last and Wednesday you- of every month. And then I put them on YouTube. You get a lot of views on YouTube? You know, more people than I expect watch happy hour that they didn't go to on YouTube. <laughs> so how can we find it on YouTube? Uh, it's on my channel. Uh, the Copano, oh. Copano. Well, you have a channel. I and have a just... channel. Whoa. I don't even have it. Well, I guess I do, but I don't ever put anything up there. I have a YouTube channel and I post links to everything on all of the social media, well, all the social media that I do, which is Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And that's under Cote Bonneville? All of it's under Cote Bonneville. I also, because we were talking about the vineyard today, I have an Instagram, what do you call it? Channel thing, whatever. A real account story. I think it's a story. I share stories of the vineyard almost every day on on Instagram. So you can go see what the vineyard looks like every day. And today it was beautiful. On a beautiful sunny day in Washington state. So take me back to 1992, and you were still fairly young, right? So whose big idea was it to plan and then plant a vineyard? How did it happen? (laughs) Whose big idea was it? (laughs) Well, everything has to be approved by my mom, first of all. So I I can relate. I can relate. My parents were planting. They they were growing grapes. They had conquered grapes, which are which go into juice and jam and grape concentrate, and they've. Mm -hmm gone to a variety of places over the years, but they'd been growing grapes since the early eighties and wanted to expand the farm. They were wine drinkers. They actually met in California in the seventies. That's when it's kind of when Americans were getting into wine. And so they got into wine and when they moved up to Washington, they were friends with a lot of people because the Yakima Valley is where the wine industry basically started in Washington And so all of the people who were living in the area and they were friends with mom and dad and they were going to tasting groups and doing all stuff. And so they, it seemed like a natural extension of the farm and their interest. So it was was already starting to thrive around them. In 1990, there were 92 wineries in the state of Washington. That sounds about right. Actually sounds a little high, but. Contrast that to in 76, there were, or in 1979, there were only 16. I mean, that was really the beginning of the exponential growth of 
the Washington industry, it's I mean, now there's over 1100 and it's still growing, which is exciting because if you go to places like Europe where people have been doing things for a long time, there's just a different level of innovation and creativity and research and stuff you learn when you when you're doing something completely new as opposed to when you've been doing it for hundreds of years. Right. And there aren't so many people around you saying, well, we know how this works. Just do what we tell you to do. <laughs> oh, people tell you that everywhere. <laughs> In everything, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so your, your parents decided to plant wine grapes. Your mom had to sign off on it. Mm-hmm. And then they did. They just, they did it. Did they already own the property? They bought the property. How many acres is the vineyard? Uh, there's 45 that are planted. Okay. Between, there's some, not huge. I think it's big. Well, the all about perspective. It's about sixty acres total because there's a pond, there's a wildlife habitat, restoration area, there's roads and a loading dock. And are they all original still, or have some of them been converted from one grape to another grape? A couple of things have been converted, but most of them are original, including okay. it was an apple orchard and it was super, super rocky. It is super rocky. And so apples need a little more soil than grapes. So the original owner had started converting it over into a vineyard and had planted some Riesling. So we have Riesling that are Riesling vines that are 40 years old. What we did was we worked with one of the preeminent viticulturalists in the state, Wade Wolf. Wade came and we dug a bunch of soil pits. We looked at the ground and we looked at what was underneath and we looked at the aspects and looked at the different temperature profiles and said, what kind of grapes will grow well in these different spots? Pretty much there's one area that we couldn't get enough canopy development for the Chardonnay and we put Cabernet there instead. And there's one area nobody wanted in 2002, nobody wanted Chardonnay and nobody was going to buy Chardonnay. So we pulled out some Chardonnay and put some Merlot in. Is there Chardonnay now? There's still Chardonnay. There's just not as much. It always surprises me when I hear about Chardonnay from Washington because I work at a winery in Sonoma where it's quite cool. We're in the cooler part of Sonoma and we grow Chardonnay and uh, everything we tell people is we grow the Chardonnay here because it's cooler. And then I think of those long days and the hot days in Washington, and I wonder about that Chardonnay. Well, there's two reasons that our Chardonnay does really well. One, unlike Sonoma, which runs the valley runs north-south, Yakima runs east-west. So we have north-facing hills and south-facing hills. Instead of morning and afternoon sun, you have either full sun or significantly more shading. And in the desert, if you go in the shade, it's a lot cooler than if you're in the sun. So the Chardonnay is planted on the shady side? The Chardonnay is planted on the shady side. So it doesn't get as much sun. It doesn't get as hot. It's cooler. Here's another thing. Because there's so much basalt in the bedrock, that means that the soil profile is enriched in certain minerals, deficient in others, and it keeps the acidity, which for for all wines, but especially for white wines, acid's really, really important. But because of the type of soil that we have, it really retains that acidity and makes those wines food friendly. And that's an important part of growing, growing good Chardonnay. Now I feel a lot better about Washington Chardonnay. Well, good. I want you to feel good. Thank you for clearing that up for me. We also grow Riesling, which is an even colder varietal. I I guess that's true because when I think about Riesling, I think of the colder part of France and Germany. So the same thing. Although it's not planted on the north-facing slope in our vineyard, but it's in a very rocky basalt area. And so the acidity and the pH is healthy. So in the 80s, everybody planted Riesling because they thought Washington was really cold. Right. And then but that was global cooling. Check the temperature. To global warming. <laughs> it's a misconception when you say the grapes are grown in Washington. Still, a good portion of the population thinks of Seattle, and they think, "How can they grow grapes when it rains so much and it's so cloudy all the time?" 
There's a mountain there's range. The magical mountain range that keeps all of the rain and all the clouds and all the fog on that side of the mountains. And on this side of the mountains, you get towns with names like Sunnyside. Sunnyside. The vineyard's actually in a town called Outlook. Yep. Beautiful downtown. Outlook, population, what, 15? 50. 50, okay. There's, yeah, the, well, they letter the streets. They don't number them. And they go all the way up to E. All the way up to E. It's a booming metropolis. Talk about a big town. 1992 is when I moved to Yakima to work on the radio at 94.5 Cats in October, to be precise, which, of course, got the ball rolling for me towards a life in wine. Little did I know. It is such a different type of wine culture now than it was then. But even though we just talked about how, you know, there's been so much growth and so much time spent and the vines are getting old. In wine industry terms, the Washington wine industry is still in its infancy. Very much so. Uh, Carrie Shields, what's in your glass? I have a glass of 2012 Carriage House, which is our Bordeaux blend. And it is a 10-year-old bottling, which is about when I like to drink these. I'm suddenly very jealous of you. (laughs) You should be. It's delicious. (laughs) That's a pretty nice bottle of wine if. If you want to track it down, Carriage House, Cote Bonneville, any vintage really, but 2012 was actually considered to be one of the great vintages in Washington state, right? 12 was a beautiful vintage in Washington. That's what I, that's, and I'm guessing now at 10 years old, they are just singing. I mean, it's still young. What's the blend? It's Cabernet Merlot and Cab Franc. This particular vintage, I don't remember, but it's about 60% Cab, 40% Merlot and 5 to 7% Cab Franc every year. Then how much and time does it spend in barrel? Two years. All French. All French. Mm-hmm. How much new oak? Probably 75% or so. Wow. Yeah. That's but if you've got really good fruit, it mm-hmm. can stand up to that oak and they balance each other and they don't overwhelm one or the other. And this is still a very fruit-driven wine. It's not oaky. I was saying, wow, because I like 75% new oak for things like that blend you just described. Well, if you would like a bottle, you can mm-hmm. either go onto CoteBonneville.com or if you don't see that particular vintage, just send me a note. Yeah. And that's Carrie at CoteBonneville.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold up the bottle. I'm going to take your picture with it. <laughs> hold this on, is hold for on. the Instagram. Oh, that's nice. You smile pretty. What's I'm just terrible at, at actually documenting. You know, I, I send people toward the Instagram and then... I'm like, oh, shit, I forgot to take a picture. <laughs> so what's know. in your glass? I'm glad you asked. I have a, a blend also, but not from Washington, from California's central coast, Paso Robles. And this is a wine that has a really cool label. There will be a picture on Instagram of this label. It's a, a dude with, uh, sun, with sunglasses on. And the dude is rocking Ted. He's a guy named Ted, although the Ted, the font they use for Ted makes me think, is this the wine they hand out at the Ted Talks? It does look like the Ted Talks. <laughs> it looks it just it looks just like the Ted. I'm, I'm I'm wondering if they've been sued. This is a blend from a winery called Cass. That's C-A-S-S, like Mama Cass. And it's an interesting story. Uh Cass is Steve Cass, and he was one of those guys who was in finance for a long time, worked for Charles Schwab. And when he got up close to retirement age, which for those guys is like, you know, 45, he started looking to uh, build his retirement 
home somewhere in California because he was living in the Bay Area. Of course, all the finance guys live in the Bay Area, San Francisco adjacent. And so he uh, started poking around Paso Robles, put in contact with a guy named Ted, who was a builder slash architect. He and Ted, you know, got together and started working on the plans for the retirement home. And then he and Ted became such good friends that they took a wine drinking slash golf trip to South Africa. And it was in South Africa over what they say on the website was too many bottles of wine where they hatched the plan to build the winery and plant some vineyards. And so Cass Winery is the name of the winery that makes this wine, and it's called Rockin' Ted. And just from the name alone, you can just guess, like, this Ted guy must be, you know, kind of a party animal. I, it sounds like it. Which- mm, the wine is delicious. It's, um, it's not super heavy. It is from 2015, but it's under screw cap, which, of course, makes it age, I think, a little bit slower. This is a blend of Mouved, Grenache, Syrah, and just for fun, they threw in 10% Petite Syrah. What did they do that for? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't know anybody there. I'm hoping to go to Paso <laughs> sometime this year because I've never been. But You've never I been? It doesn't say why they put it in here, Carrie. It just says 39% Mouved, 31% Grenache, 20% Syrah, 10% Petite Syrah. There should be parentheses because we want people to ask us why. We put Petite Syrah in the wine. Petite Syrah and Syrah are not actually related. And no, so- no, we've talked about that on other other editions of the podcast. Okay. They're not related, and people thought they were for a long time until some French guy showed up and said, uh, this is not Syrah, oh, Petite Syrah. This is Durif. Which is a cool name. But once the Petite Syrah boat was already sailing here in California – Nobody was going to pull it back into port and change the name. Are you using your official Tall Mike Wine podcast coaster over there? Today, I am using a stack of bills, unfortunately. Ooh. The wow, look at coasters you. are buried. On oh, my bills, desk. like bills you have to pay, not $100 bills. Unfortunately, that is correct. But- <laughs> I got a stack of bills. I just use them for coasters, really. That <laughs> well, paper money. That paper tall- money is not really good for much. The tall Mike wine coasters are underneath the the stack of paperwork and bills. I need to clean. They're my somewhere desk. though, right? Okay. They're, yeah, of course. Anyone who needs a coaster, if they run out of bills to use, I will send them to you. The tall Mike wine podcast coaster is available for free. You just have to email me at tallmikewine at gmail dot com, and then you have to give me your address if you're comfortable with that. But I I pay the postage. But then you get coasters. And then you get coasters. Everybody needs coasters. And then people post them on social media, and that's kind of cool. That is cool. So I work for an estate winery slash vineyard Mm -hmm. down here in Sonoma, as do you. But Mm -hmm. that's not incredibly common in Washington. What is more typical, would you say? Well, I think the concept of an estate winery is not typical, even in California. The model everywhere is you have people who grow grapes or you have people who make, and you have people who make wine and they're not always the same people. The concept of an estate winery where you grow all of your own fruit, it's special because it gives you complete control over the process. I think it makes you a better winemaker to spend all of the time in the vineyard because it's so much easier to make winemaking decisions in the vineyard than to have to try to fix something later. 
But really, there's only, I mean, order of magnitude, there's still around 300 vineyards and like 1,100 wineries. So by definition, most wineries are buying fruit from a lot of vineyards. Right. And some wineries own their tiny little estate vineyard, and then they buy a lot of fruit. Well, yeah, because if you plant an acre of vines in front of your tasting room, then you look like a winery. You should get some dogs. Winery dogs are important. Winery dogs are important. It's a dog's life. (laughs) Yes. A vineyard dog's life is the best form of dog's life, I think. I'll bet in 30 years, the Shields family has learned a few lessons. What are some of the big ones? And do you have a chance to impart your knowledge to the newcomers? There are still new wineries popping up, as we said just a few minutes ago. Well, there's lots of new wineries. And the way we started, the lessons that we learned in the winery 20 years ago versus the lessons we've learned today are, you know, some of them are the same and some are different. Obviously, the world is a very different place, especially within the last two years. Things have changed so much with digital and online and podcasting. And I mean, in the last 25 episodes, the podcast world has changed dramatically. My podcast is just a little over a year old, and there's so much more competition now than there was then. I think the key that we've always done that's great. I like to think I have three jobs. I grow really great grapes. I make really great wine and I take really great care of people, whether that's our winemakers, whether it's our suppliers, whether it's our customers. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a thing we all do because we like to. Taking care of people is hugely important. And especially when times are challenging, like in the last couple of years, it's great to have people who care about you and are really vested in your success and stick with you. That is definitely one thing we've learned. You know, I love that answer because I said, what have you learned in all this time with the vineyard and the winery? And the first thing you said was, you got to take care of people. So you didn't go into the science. You didn't go into, well, this scrape or that soil or this trend in the business of wine. You went right to, you got to take care of the people. And that's, I love that. That really is cool. Well, thanks. I mean, we have learned a lot with the science. We try not to follow the trends because it's expensive. But at the end of the day, whatever you learn with the science, whatever we learn about canopy management and disease management and all the things, we do this to make people happy. And we do this so that, you know, we do this so that we can employ a bunch of people and give our awesome crew a bunch of jobs so that these women can support their families, which is great. And then they take care of us when we need it. And we do this to make people happy in the, with the bottles of wine. Canopy management in and of itself is not the end goal. Making people happy is the end goal. Again, that's really cool. That's a great perspective. It's very refreshing. I do. Uh, I will say that uh, last night I enjoyed a bottle of wine with the train station on the label. Mm. It was quite nice. Uh, your train station line of wines. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, those are fun. They are also under screw cap, like the wine you were drinking. We it was, uh, it was Cabernet Franc from 2018. Oh, that's exciting. Because that's the only time I've made Cabernet Franc. At all? Yeah. Well, I mean, I make, I make Cab Franc Rosé, but people tend not to think that's Cab Franc. They think it's Rosé. It's Rosé. <laughs> so we started with Cobonneville, which is the... It's a family estate that was built by my great-great-grandfather. All the pictures on the label are different parts of the house. The wines are very classic. They're very traditional. Because we are such a young industry, you get all of the creative, dynamic, innovative, let's try new stuff, which is super fun. But there's no context in the global world of wine. 
that's what the Cobonville wines are. And then when we opened our tasting room in 2015, 15 years after we started the winery, we put it in a historic train station, cool old buildings. You moved it from where it was to where it is now in downtown Sunnyside. Yeah. Because when I, when I visited you there a little over a year ago, mm-hmm. that's where I bought that bottle of train station Cabernet Franc. And uh, I knew that the tasting room was a an old train station. I got there and I'm like, where are the... Where are the train tracks? Why right. isn't it next to the, if it's a train station? I don't get it. No, we moved it in, uh, in 1980. It was Union Pacific was tearing down all the old train stations and they were part of the original line that was the first train line in the middle of Washington. They had all these really cool old stations, but nobody was using them. Uh, Union Pacific was tearing down the train stations and this one was the last one and they wanted the land. And so in order to save the building, mom, dad picked it up and moved it. No, it's really cool. Your, your your tasting room is lovely. Thank you. And so then the wines are celebrate everything that is cool about Washington, all that other stuff that I talked about that's not classic and traditional. It's fun. It's dynamic. It's innovative. It's more focused on varietals than classical blends. I can do different stuff. Like I said, with a Cabernet Franc, I don't usually have enough Cab Franc that's red to put in its own bottling. In 2018, we made like 100 cases, but I had a couple barrels that I could that didn't need to go into the other blend. And so I had enough to keep separate and put into its own bottling. And I'm doing that again in 2020. I only had two barrels total in 19, so they went into the carriage house blend. But in 2020, I'm doing it again. So later this month, I'll be bottling that. And so our wine club will be getting that this spring. There will be a 2020 train station cab franc yeah keeps it new and fresh for everybody else and for me which is important you gotta have fun yeah you know i mean cindy lopper said it best i think that song popped into my head too (laughs) (laughs) who are some of your favorite wine people and wineries in washington state oh that's a long list give me a couple people who pop into your head immediately one of my closest Friends and colleagues is also in Sunnyside, Washington, Coden of Coden Cellars. He definitely makes the list not only because we taste a lot and we spend a lot of time together, but he also went to UC Davis and I knew him when I was in high school. He came, he was one of the people that came up from UC Davis, was one of the my inspirations to go to Davis, along with Kay Simon from Chinook Winery and Wade Wolf. And Wade is still in the industry. Kay is still in the industry. So they're great people. I would say some of our current vineyard customers like David O'Reilly of Owen Rowe is just, I mean, we've been working with him since 99 and it's. Mm, those wines are beautiful. They the are. Owen Rowe wines, and, the, the red, the big reds that they make us, you know, from De Brule Vineyard are uh, pretty phenomenal. Well, and David's just a phenomenal person. He's so much fun. That's good. And to know. He tells really good stories and he's great. What I about mean, California? Who are some people in California you know and love? Well, I, I do have to always love the peop- the places that I started at. I love the people at Phelps. That was my first professional vintage. At Joseph, Joseph Phelps. At Joseph Phelps. That winery holds a, holds a spot near and dear in my heart. I've got friends down in Santa Barbara that I've met through this down at like Brewer Clifton and places like that, that are just super fun people. And I still keep in touch with the people who are at Mondavi from when I worked there and Folio with the actual Mondavi family. And there's good people everywhere in this industry. It's true. 
I think it's, it has a lot to do with the fact that we drink a lot of wine. That just keeps you happy. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out on the podcast. Yeah. For the second time. I'm always glad to be back. The Tall Mike Wine Podcast was conceived and is written, produced, edited, and maintained by yours truly. Today's remote recording was done using the Zencaster website. To see pictures of the wines we're having and behind the scenes, follow me on Instagram at Tall Mike Wine. And again, for your very own set of Tall Mike Wine podcast coasters, send me an email, tallmikewine at gmail. That email works if you have any sort of question, comment, guest suggestion, or whatever. But if you want to write a review on Apple Podcasts, that'd be even cooler. Rate us on Apple Podcasts, and now you can rate us on Spotify. Oh, Spotify. That's episode 25. Thanks for finding us. From Novato, California, I'm Tall Mike Wine. But please, just call me Mike. Cheers. Cheers.